This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome. This is the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week, we're catching up with engineer and former CEO of BP, John Brown, whose optimistic vision of a future built on positive technological innovation is a much-needed counterweight to the tribulations and anxieties of 2020. Matthew Stadlin caught up with Lord Brown backstage at the How To Academy last year around the publication of his book, Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. Lord Brown, it's great to be with you backstage ahead of your event. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with a very big picture question, but you might choose to answer it in a very specific way. What do you think it means to be a successful business leader? I think being a successful business leader probably is the same as being a successful leader. To me, the single most important factors are knowing where you're going, having a real purpose in life, a real purpose for the business, having very clear boundaries to that, which are called values, so what you do and what you don't do, and then making sure that you bring everyone along with you. Inclusion is the key to success, whether they're uh, stakeholders outside the company, investors, uh, and people who you're affecting uh, by your business, or whether it's the team inside. But inclusion is the critical skill. And do you feel that your leadership in the various enterprises that you have been a leader within has been rooted in your background, in your past, in your upbringing. You were actually born in Hamburg and your mother was a Holocaust survivor. That's correct. Uh, and so uh, I think leadership style is is rooted in uh, your life generally. And of course, it keeps changing uh, as you learn more and you make enough mistakes and learn from those mistakes. But certainly the things that I learned as a child from my family, notably my mother, uh, kept me uh, very clearly on the straight and narrow. I mean, I, the thing she told me about making sure I only looked forward and not backwards, why would you look backwards if you're a Holocaust survivor, and believe in the future and progress? These were things that drove me the whole time. There was no room for looking back and moaning, or even moaning about things you which which weren't today. The fact was that they are today, you have to do something about them. 
and woe betide anyone in my family who said things must change and have no solution. Uh, that would be the regarded as absolutely no-no. You had to have, be clear about what it was you were going to do about something before you complained about it. Except that, as you yourself have just said, you have learned from mistakes, which requires, to some extent, looking backwards before you look forwards. But also in the book, you say that all progress, in a sense, is, is based on previous achievements. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of others, Absolutely. aren't we? Absolutely. And by that, I mean, uh, I agree with you, you look back, but you look back to learn. You don't look back to regret. I think that's the important thing. Uh, you look back to learn, you build on uh, failures and successes of the past, whether they're your own or what you observe someone else to do. Uh, and that's the essence of things like engineering, for example. I remember, you know, Canadian engineers all wear a ring on their small finger. And you'd wonder why that is. It was an effect, uh, some sort of effete thing to do. No, it wasn't. These were the remnants of a bridge created by Canadian engineers that fell down. And it's to remind everybody that you have to do things properly, otherwise things go wrong. Engineering is at the centre of this book. Make, think, imagine engineering the future of civilization. To what extent, for example, when you were leading BP, when you were chief executive there, were you aware of the importance of engineering, or not so much the importance, really the centrality of engineering, not just to the business model, but also to what it meant to be a leader? I was because, well, first of all, I'm an engineer. And secondly, I recognise that in business and in many walks of life, until you actually make something or do something that is concrete, deliver something to other people, to markets, to investors, to society as a whole, your idea is interesting, but it's of no consequence. You actually have to create something. And engineering is the gap between... Uh, creation of an idea, creation of something that then can affect society, whether that's a market or whether it's uh, a simply uh, people individually. And the fact that you yourself had experience of engineering meant that your ideas as a leader didn't exist in a vacuum. No, and I started uh, my life as an engineer uh, you know, 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle in Anchorage in Alaska. Uh, and uh, trying to see actually what happened and learn uh, from people around me who knew what they were doing. Very practical things. Uh, and then I went, I did a decade of direct, pure engineering uh, before I went into uh, the more complicated life of trying to get things done as a leader uh, with finance uh, and uh, other people. So this was rather like, I don't know, a manager of a supermarket having worked on the shelves, having got their hands dirty, understanding the nitty gritty of how the business works on a day-to-day -day basis at the coalface. That's right. It's a good idea to do that, I always think, uh, because it roots you in something very clear and practical. Uh, and you know the difference between writing something down on a piece of paper and actually getting it done with people who need constant uh, motivation, continuous reminding of the direction being taken, and assistance in solving problems. Sometimes they assist you in solving problems, but often the leader has to help them solve a problem too. And you can't do that just on bits of paper in a head office. Uh, in my business, 
there was very little oil to be found under a head office in London. Uh, the oil was out there in other places and other parts of the world. Which leads me to this question. To what extent do you think your academic success at Cambridge meant that you could go on to do what you went on to do? You got a first-class degree. Do you think you could have achieved what you achieved in business without that? What big a proportion of your success was that rooting in academia? I think it, there are different routes to success. Uh, I used my training in in mostly mathematics, uh, to begin to try and solve problems that other people hadn't solved. And I found that very exciting, especially when it had a real practical implication, could see what was going to happen to your solution and be part of it. And so that was very exciting. Other people do it different ways, but that's how I built my career. And I built it because I enjoyed what I was doing. I had no idea actually where it was going to take me uh, I think certainly at least for the first 25 years. At the very end of the book, in fact, in your final sentence, you talk about all progress stemming from a vision for a better world, unless I've mischaracterized it. Were you aware of that as a leader at BP? Did you envisage and envision a better world? Were you thinking beyond simply profit and thinking about the ways, I think I partly know the answer to this question, of course, because I've read a lot of what you've written in the past, but did you see a world beyond the profit margin? Uh, yes, but it, it took time to see it. Uh, my first approach was definitely engineering, solve problems. Then I realised that problems had to be solved in a way which were appropriate and brought more and more people into the solution, including people not inside the company, stakeholders as we call today. Uh, and, and that really affected the way I thought about business. And when I went to Stanford Business School, I was taught by some greats who really tried to teach us about problems where there was no clear-cut solution. It was about judgment, about how you affected people, the environment, and so forth. And I suppose when I became CEO of BP, uh, the big challenge I had was not only trying to grow the company, which was very important, but also to do it in a way which made sense for the future. And that's why in the late 90s, I gave a speech to say, actually, oil companies are the, tr the problem when it comes to climate change, and we should do something about it. And I laid out a plan uh, of what we should do, and we carried on with that plan. Uh, and I, wish every, I wish what I hadn't got was a big enough following of all the companies in the world to come along with me. And was that plan, that vision, as much about the sustainability of the planet as it was about the sustainability of the company, or did the two have to go hand in hand? So there was a big conundrum in my mind. Uh, energy was the bedrock of uh, progress. You know, without energy, you can't do much, you can't read, you can't uh, eat, uh, you can't move, uh, and you can't survive, you can't be healthy. So on the one hand, everyone wanted energy. On the other hand, burning all this fossil fuel was doing bad things to our world. So the question was, how do you balance the two together? How do you balance it so that the things we were doing to the world would keep, allow people to survive and sustainably, but also progress at the same time? And I believe, you know, as time goes by, solutions to make growth sustainable always come to hand. So a vital question, I think, which is right at the heart of much of what you've done in your career, but also at the heart of 
the biggest issue facing us today, namely how do we live in a sustainable way in a planet that continues to be able to nourish and nurture us. Do you think that in order to save the world or to save a place that is habitable, continues to be habitable, that we need to harness progress? In other words, that we can't do that without progress. We can't do that without invention. Or do you think in order to save the world, we have to row back on progress? We have to turn it round? I set my face against rowing back against progress. Uh, progress will be enabled by better and more exciting ideas in engineering, in commerce, in science, uh, and in behaviour. These things develop. If you look at the progress of the world over history, uh, there were many times where people said, you know, there's no point in doing anything here because we'll run out of resources. Uh, Mr Malthus, I think, was uh, had this idea a long time ago. We've had peak this, peak that... We've had destruction, uh, only to find that actually there are different ways of doing things. And people intervene, they use different technologies to allow us to continue progress. And that's a good thing, because not everybody is sitting in central London, uh, well-nourished, well-dressed, uh, you know, thinking about these great things. They're actually wanting to survive and get better every day. And we should allow that to happen. We must allow it to happen. And how optimistic are you that that will happen? How optimistic are you that human ingenuity, human invention can lead us out of this mess? Because in the book, there are some quite mind-bogglingly exciting examples of engineering, of progress, someone who can move their prosthetic arm by thinking. Uh, Absolutely. There are so many great things that uh, we can do. And uh, we do things not only practically for ourselves, but we do things to remind us that our imagination is the unique, special thing that human beings have that I think no machine can have. And we feed our imagination by doing amazing things. The James Webb Telescope, which is being built at the moment, when it's successfully launched, will go a million miles away from the planet and it will look even further into the beginning of time. I think that's really very exciting. Uh, It will fill people's imagination up. It will give us information about whether we're alone, how we started, all these things which were important for the human mind. Not very interesting for a machine, but really interesting for a human being. And you've stood on a desert yourself, on a desert floor, and and marvelled at at the idea that really we are not nearly as significant as perhaps we, we like to think we are. We're not, but I like to think that the human has only one exceptional characteristic compared with a machine, and that is it can imagine things. And that, I think, is a great exceptional item. And that you think, or hope, tell me which, will continue to be the dividing line between robotics and humans? Or do you think that there is a danger that those two will blur to the extent that in the not-too-distant future, perhaps, we will no longer be uniquely human? I, You can never say never. But I think it will take so long that if we get to that point, we will have accommodated to it long before we get there. But I remind people that, you know, the human brain is very complicated. There are more connections in the human brain than there are if you add up all the computers in the world. So it's a very complex thing to uh, duplicate. Do you think if it were decided collectively, if there were a scientific consensus in an order 
to save the world effectively. And I'm, I'm, I'm using that term because science is now talking in very apocalyptic terms about our future and, and about the urgency of the crisis facing us and the planet. But do you think if there were to be a scientific consensus that we, we did actually have to stop progress, as it were, we, ha we had to, to somehow stifle ourselves. We, had to, we have to drive less. We have to fly less. We maybe have to change our diets. Do you think that we are capable of that as human beings? Or do you think it is simply so counterintuitive, runs so against the human instinct, that we will be unable to, to, to meet that challenge? I think that it would be very difficult to sell that politically uh, in a country, let alone right across the world. I do think you would have to see a clear and present danger not an existential threat, but a clear and present danger to begin to galvanise some of those thoughts. But we do see that, don't not we? Not quite, no, we don't. This is where, so far, uh, we haven't seen a clear and present danger. We've see we need to take precautions against an existential threat that could arise soon. Although uh, there are fires in California that some would put true. down to changes but in the climate. This is true, but uh, they may or may not be related to the changes in the climate. Can we afford to take the risk that they aren't? No, no we can't, uh, but we can do some things. But right now, I would say most people will not be prepared to relate that to what they have to do themselves. Because I think as Socrates said, we as humans, we magnify what is immediately in front of us and we diminish what is further away, even correct. if what is further away is, is a far greater threat. Uh, absolutely. And politically, that's also the case. In the end, there's a finite amount of things that politicians are prepared to do, uh, and they won't necessarily sacrifice today for tomorrow. It's a very tough sell. It has to be something which is so obvious to all the population for them to uh, come along with. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. That's the second time you've used the word politically. And you yourself, of course, are a politician. You're, you're a lord. You, you have a seat in the House of Lords. To what extent did you as a business leader, do you as a business leader, harness politics, harness the power of politics and develop relationships with politicians in order to become a more powerful leader, in order better to advance the interests of your company? At BP, for example, I think you were quite close to New Labour. Well, I was at BP, I was close to a, a lot of different uh, leaderships of different countries. Uh, I was remind myself that business simply has a license to operate. And that license is granted by states. It's not a God-given right, it's a license, and it can be withdrawn 
it can be enhanced, it can be changed. And so you have to, I think, work with many different regimes, many different people, recognizing that you have to include them in your decisions and you have to be included in their decisions. It's about keeping that balance. You don't want to get too close. You don't want to be too far, just at the right balance point where you can align interests, align interests ethically and correctly. If we step away from climate for a moment, and you'll forgive me for that, that having been a quite important theme of the conversation. And in my life, actually, yeah, in my uh, business life. And feels relevant both to you and, and very pressing for, for all of us. If we step back from that for a moment and just talk more generally about attitudes towards management, attitudes towards leadership, how important is ethics outside of the climate as a business leader, as someone who has enormous responsibility. I mean, you have huge responsibility now, of course, but you, you, you were one of the biggest global business leaders of, of your era. And you were, I think, nicknamed the Sun King. And you were widely lauded for a huge amount of what you did. In one of your previous books, you talk very candidly, I thought, and impressively and honestly about the interface that, that, that you experience between ethics and profit how did you balance those two sometimes competing interests? So I think it's essential for any corporation to have clear values. These have to be espoused the whole time about what you will do and you will not do. And you don't contravene those bright lines. But more importantly, you have to behave by example consistently. So you can't say to someone... She is such a great marketing director that it was okay for her to pay off somebody to do something. That's not permitted. Out immediately, there can be no exceptions against the values of a company. And you debate uh, lots of questions. In BP, we debated lots of questions. For example, uh, we had a rule we, we never paid anybody anything to facilitate anything. So... Let's suppose a tanker captain uh, on the Bosphorus gives uh, the pilot who comes on board to steer your ship through the Bosphorus uh, 50 cigarettes. Now, is that a bribe? Is it, what is it? What actually is it? And where is the de minimis threshold? What, what do we know about these things? And that's the sort of thing you have to debate and get people aligned around. Otherwise, they're not sure what they're doing and they're not sure what you think and that then changes the interface between the leadership and the team. And, and as, as a business leader, do you take responsibility for everything that happens under your watch or not? Yes, At what do. point do you draw the line? If there's an accident as there were, as there were during your City, time? I was City. very clear. I took uh, accountability for that and I said we will sort this out and we did sort it out. So I was very clear about that. Does indeed. that live with you? I'm not saying it was oh, your fault. Absolutely. It was with it happened within no, the it's, company, it's but the company. lives were lost. Of, of course, of course, it lives with me. Uh, I think daily what it was for the families who were affected, and you and the, and the team. I went to Texas City immediately after the accident, uh, first to see the team, and when walking around with these uh, extraordinary people, they were stunned. Uh, about the accident, uh, we recovered the last body from the ashes. This is something that affected everybody enormously. Uh, and it 
brought home to people the, the individual loss of people to families and, and injuries, uh, both uh, uh, of uh, the spirit and of the body. So my, my view with BP was to settle this. Insofar as money made a difference, we would settle it very quickly with everybody, which is what we did. How would you describe your leadership style? Because you're known to be rather softly spoken. I mean, I know you a little bit personally, and, and you're, you're modest in the way that you engage with people and you are softly spoken, but how did you command the respect that is necessary in a massive organisation? How did you do that? And were you conscious about techniques of doing it? I, I wasn't really conscious. I, I think I learnt about what I was doing uh, uh, from other people around me, uh, and, so, and who corrected me uh, sometimes. They would say that I was always more effective when I was the sun rather than the moon. Uh, and this, I think, they mean by the way I behaved, the way I smiled, the way I looked at people. But I, I realised at the end that actually the most important thing is to be clear about where you want to go, having discussed it with people, and then including them. And I mean really including them. Making sure that people don't feel that there's an inside team and an outside team. Uh, that you know all the people from this division count and those don't. Because the moment you do that, everybody says, well, I too could be an outsider in a moment. And that's not what you want. You really want people to be inside with you and with you for the purpose of the firm. And you can do the same with partners as well. You know, business partners are a way of life for every business. And it's important that they feel that you really are a partner. You may argue about a contract and come to blows over it. But when you've done that, you really need to understand that the partnership is an organic relationship that has to be, it's about two-way street. It's about mutuality. Uh, and that's about inclusion. And while you've already talked about taking responsibility for things, presumably delegating is also essential. It goes without saying that uh, in the end, uh, there's only so many things you can do. And actually, the most successful thing is the selection and the creation of a great team around you, around them, around the whole firm. It is, in the end, that is the thing that makes a great a firm, makes a great organisation of any sort uh, and differentiates it from one which is uh, you know, always performing slightly below where it should be. Football managers, cricket managers, they have this, I imagine, constant dilemma. To, to what extent do they want to be loved and liked and become friends with the players that they have the power to pick or to drop? To what extent have they got to, to create a, a boundary between the two? How, how did you harness those two things? Did you want to be liked? Did you want to be loved? How do you see yourself in those terms as a leader? No, I, I, I never led in order to be liked or loved. Uh, I led to be effective. And if that meant, uh, you know, asking people to leave, uh, very often they realised it was time for them to go, more often than not. Uh, but uh, constant strengthening of the team is absolutely essential. And, and great organisations, whether that's a scientific one like the Crick Institute that I chair, or whether it's a great company or even a small company, uh, they all worry about 
How do we get the team to be the best in the world? How do we keep making it better? Uh, and that's about selection, training, development, and selection again. I want to talk a bit more before we finish about the book and about the future. Did you ha have a temper? Do you have a temper? What happens if you get angry? How do you express that? Because I think that's always very interesting and revealing of people because we've all been in work environments and different bosses have very different ways of communicating what it is they want to communicate when they, when they need to, to be stern. How do you do it? I, I don't think I have a temper. You're smiling uh, as you say this, uh, but not, not in a naughty way, not I, in a way that says I, that you're, you're not really meaning what you say. No, no, I, I don't think I have a temper. I think when I get uh, angry internally, I get more determined. And that means I need to have people around me who say, why don't you just think about it before you do this, you know? But uh, I, I do think, uh, you know, business, uh, many parts of life, uh, is about getting things done. And, and it's very important to remember that. Getting things done, delivering, making a promise and fulfilling it, absolutely essential. That's actually something that Lord Sugar made clear once when he came onto a, a BBC programme that I was involved in. He said that the reason he was there was because he had said to one of my, also at the time, junior members of staff, junior colleagues, that he was going to do it. And if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And, and, and that's when I get angry. When someone says they're going to do it and doesn't do it and has absolutely no explanation for why it wasn't done. There are some explanations that are very valid, like the world changed you know, as I was trying to do this. That's a, a big, a, could be a good reason. But if there's no reason, if it's just, well, I you know, just didn't bother, that makes me quite angry. And I, then I'm determined that this thing should be delivered. Just to set aside all modesty for a moment, why do you think you were able to be as successful as you have been? Why do you think you were able to end up leading such a, a huge company to, to be a, a lord, to, to write all these books... What, what is it about you that that, that made that possible? Uh, I don't know. I think probably how I was brought up. I mean, I was always brought up to do things thoroughly and well, and I did. I started my career as a scientist, then an engineer. I did that well, and then I did other things on top. I was always excited to uh, do something different and unusual, solve a problem that hadn't been solved before, uh, and then I kept going. But what uh, I, I never actually thought, in all my career, I never actually thought I had a plan to go to the top. I really? didn't actually have a plan to go to the top. So what marked you out as a leader, though? Well, I guess I got things done, and I got things done which were different from those things other people had done previously. And that meant taking calculated risks, uh, which uh, is what I've done for the whole of my life. And steeliness? Is there a steeliness, a determination, a resilience? Yes, you have to keep going. If you decide to take a risk and you've worked out how you can do it, you have to finish. Uh, what would you like us to take away from this book? There's so much in there. You talk about how we need to continue to defend ourselves, how we need to continue to, to move, to, to transport ourselves, how we need to continue to imagine, how we need to continue to think. There, there are all these chapters under, under single word headlines. What would you like us so, to so take away book, from it? is not comprehensive on all human activity. But the activities I've chosen, the single verbs that describe each chapter, are things I've had experience, my personal experience in these areas. 
And I've tried to relate history to the future to give people confidence, real confidence, that progress is not only possible but is highly desirable. It's what we must do and how engineering is the, is the foundation of it all. You could argue that engineering really is the foundation of civilization. Of course, I know as well as other people uh, that you know, the human mind needs more than engineering. It needs all the things enabled by engineering, whether that's great poetry, uh, imagining what happens at the beginning of time, a great painting, a great stage show, a great football match. All these things are essential. But on their foundation, it is actually engineering. And that's what I'd like people to take away from this book. And I'd like them to be optimistic about the future. You talk about poetry. I mean, of course, Homeric poetry was, was oral poetry and was passed down orally. But beyond that, it required a pen or a pencil. And you, you mentioned yes. engineering of the pen in the book. And the pen is the, the greatest thing that connects the brain to something else very easily. We shouldn't forget, of course, that engineering can have catastrophic consequences. For example, in the Holocaust and the machine, the tabulator that you, you reference as well. It's one of the first things I, I, I talk about in one of the early chapters is when I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., this machine, the Hollerith tabulator, part of IBM, uh, was used to sift and sort uh, the Holocaust victims uh, into different categories pretty chilling uh, use of technology uh, in order to decide how to kill people. According to the holes punched into the paper Correct. that the machine would then yes. recognise and sift people in the most yes. chilling imaginable exactly. way. Let's finish on an upbeat note. Do you have a top tip for aspirant business leaders or given that you say you didn't really have a plan to get to the top, is it that people should just be passionate about what they do? Be passionate about one thing and do it really well. And when you get to the point of leadership, remember, you have to set direction, you have to have values, and you have to include people. Because if you don't do that, what happens is groups of people then decide to pursue their own interests rather than the interests of the whole, and they fight. And we've seen that happen in politics so often, it can happen in companies as well. Lord Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. This week's podcast starred John Brown and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and Sam Algranti, and the editor was John Doughty. Lord Brown's book, Make, Think, Imagine, is about to come out in paperback, and I'm delighted to say that we'll be hosting him for a free live stream next month. So if this episode has given you burning questions, do sign up at howtoacademy.com. As ever, we'd love for you to rate, review and subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And tweet us at HowToAcademy with your thoughts and suggestions for future guests. Stay safe and thanks for listening.